0: Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Alexander Chandler with Alexander Chandler Realty in Fort Worth, Texas. Last year, he closed 271 transactions with a total sales volume of 68 million. His average sales price was 253,000, of which 10% were buyers and 90% were sellers. He has a four-member team: two sales agents, one listing coordinator, and one listing agent team leader. Alexander is the team leader of Alexander Chandler Realty. He's been an agent for 20 years. In his best year, two thousand fifteen, he sold five hundred and eleven homes worth one hundred and twenty three million and was ranked the number three agent in America by The Wall Street Journal and Real Trends. In this call, Alexander talks about avoiding real estate sales when he started earning a living and what pulled him into real estate, starting from zero in three different markets in three different cities. Lead generation he used to get a fast start in each new market. Developing a niche representing new home builders. Listing and selling new construction homes has been 90% of his practice. Multiple ways agents can start a relationship with a new home builder. Using creative marketing to sell new construction homes. Basic concepts for setting your commission rate and fee structure when representing builders and the difference between percentage and flat rate. New home builders know that 48% of all new homes are sold to buyers who are represented by an agent, so most plan to pay agents a co-op commission. Five common reasons new home developments fail and simple solutions that you can use to become a hero to the builder. Why branding and perception are important to both builders and agents. Team dynamics, creative marketing, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, Real Estate Agent Lead Generation Television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Alexander.
1: Thank you for having me, Mike. I'm glad to be here.
0: Hey, Alexander. It's great to have you here. Alexander, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before I got into real estate, I honestly grew up around it and the thought
1: of it repulsed me because my mother was the top agent in the city I grew up in. But I was in the restaurant business for about seven or eight years and managing restaurants before I got into real estate.
0: You said that your mom was a top agent and it repulsed you. How come? Because I was showing
1: houses at eight years old and I was being drugged to open houses and showing properties from as long as I can remember, basically.
0: So you went into the restaurant business for many years. What made you decide to go back into real estate?
1: My mother got a near-fatal car wreck And I took over her business, and my first day on the job was 14 rental properties, 24 listings, and five escrows, and my mother in the intensive care unit. And I had to kind of just play along like I knew what I was doing and maintain her business because uh, she was the top producer in the company in Taos, New Mexico, and it was a small company, so she had two other agents with her and they needed my help and she needed my help so it took me in New Mexico at the time this was 1996 it only took me about three weeks to get my license which I was able to do and that's how I took over her business she had to wreck a car to get me to get a job basically <laughs> and so oh man <laughs> so I took over a business and in two years I had 25% of that company's business in two years wow She retired and I worked with her. And then after that two years, she basically went into retirement and helped me get started and just kind of, she was recuperating for a long time. So she kind of went active after that. I helped carry her business while she was sick.
0: You were thrown right in the middle of a fast action practice where there was a lot of activity happening and you had to learn really quickly. Of course, you already knew from watching and tracking your mom in your youth but now you had to go perform. Pretty much, but as far as training and things go, I think it's like
1: geometry. You can read all the books you want, but until you put pen to paper and actually do it, in real estate, people that think that they can read books or do this all by video and learn by video only, and think they can do it at home, on their couch, on their computer, it's not possible. Real estate is an interactive business. You have to be present in order to succeed. And so I was thrown in the deep end and got busy active, and so I would recommend for new agents, find a way to get involved quickly and be active. Not in an extreme way that I was, but uh, that's the biggest mistake I see newer agents make is not getting in there and finding an experienced agent that has business for them. Mine was a severe situation, but uh, if I were a brand new agent starting, I would find someone that does have overflow business, join a team, or find a company that's an active company. And that's where I would start.
0: Good advice. If I got this correct, you started in 96. So you've been in the business for about 20 years? 20 years. And I started my company about 10 years ago. And you moved markets as well. You started in House, New Mexico, and now you're in Fort Worth, Texas. Did you make that transition, that move 10 years ago?
1: Well, from House, I was recruited to a company in Tucson which was the largest independently owned company in the United States at the time. And I went to Tucson not knowing a soul. And then in five years, I was selling 19 million with an average sales price of 165,000. And I had found a niche, which was new homes. And I saw the bubble about to burst. And that was right before the great recession hit. And it was pretty irresponsible what was going on as far as lending and people flipping houses. And I thought going nowhere but down. And Tucson was a very transient place and my family's been in Texas for 12 generations. So I thought that uh, it was about time to come home because I went there to go and do it on my own and not be my mother's son anywhere because if I had moved back immediately to Fort Worth, I would have had to be under... So I wanted to do it fresh on my own where I was doing my own thing rather than having her influence. But then when I got to Fort Worth, I started over a third time. So I've had to start over three times or start three times. So that's given me a little bit more insight than other people because people wonder, what do you do when your business crashes? Well, it's the same thing. What do you do when you're in a recession or anything? It's the same thing as if you were going to move and people are faced with these challenges every time. I've had to do it because of geography. A lot of people have to do it because of the economy and whatever forces, our life forces that happen with them, they have to start over in many ways. And that's what real estate actually is, that people don't get. It. You wake up every day and every day is something different. And you're as good as your system, but you always have to keep updating it and changing every day and realize that if you're not out prospecting and growing your business, your business is dying.
0: You do have a little better knowledge than most this experience of starting over three times in three different markets, two of which, uh, well, it's definitely the one in Tucson. You did not know a single person. How did you do that? How did you go to a new market and start fresh? That is carried over from something my mother said to me. And I actually said this when I was
1: handing out the Rookie of the Year Award for my company, Alexander Chandler Realty, this year. and came from, I'll never forget it. I was laying on my sofa and it was a nice leather sofa that some guy couldn't fit on a truck after we sold his house. And my mother just comes into my house and says, what are you doing? Why aren't you at the office? And I said, well, I was watching that game show Press Your Luck. And I said, well, I don't have any business. She says, of course you don't. You're on your sofa. And I <laughs> said, well, I don't have any clients. And she goes, again, you don't because you're on your sofa. And she said, look, Every sale that happens comes through the front door of that office. No matter how it gets there, no matter where it comes from, ultimately it comes through those doors in one way or another. And if you're not there, you're not going to be able to take the opportunity when people are busy and can't take a lead or drive someone around. They're going to look to whoever's there to help them. And if you're there, they might pick you, especially if you're the only one there because people have a tendency not to show up. And once people start knowing they can rely on you, they will start using you for their business. And so what happened is I started going to the office every day, and that's how I wound up with that large percentage of my first company's business. But when I went to Tucson, I did as much open houses as I could. I did one almost every weekend, and I suggest people not burn out on them. You don't have to do them every weekend because you need to stay fresh with them. But I did them about three times a month usually, and then I did for sale by owners. I called for sale by owners and the buyers religiously, and I also found a couple of top agents that I basically told them, if you're in a situation where you need somebody to show or help with the listing, I will do it. And then they started giving me business that was leads that they did not think were A-level leads. They were giving me D-level leads, but I started closing them. And pretty soon, they started giving me A-level leads. And so what I found was uh, I wound up having two or three people that were part time that were sending me business because I was closing their deals for them, and I had a fifty fifty split with them and I had three people like that, one was a professional photographer and two other retired people that had big books of business and people, but they just didn 't want to go out and own property, so they gave me the lead and I closed them and that 's how I started. I was in my late twenties at the time, and so uh, in five years, I wound up closing about 85 transactions a year. And then I found a partner and she and I were doing new homes and we managed subdivisions and I typically did the marketing with those and she would handle all the buyers and I managed the listing side of them and then we split the inventory with the builders that we were working with. So once I got that core fundamental thing of for sale by owners and expireds and I've always called them because look, no isn't going to kill you. And so I'm a forty eight year old bachelor and I can promise you no is not gonna kill you. You hear no in real estate more than you hear yes, but most people quit after the first or second no and sometimes you just ask permission. People don't know how to ask permission. And that's the no that they need to know is to know how to ask permission for things. For for sale by owner or expired, say, Would you mind if I called you in a couple of weeks to follow it up? Most people just to get you off the phone will just say, Yes, you're okay. But then when you call back and say it Hey, you gave me permission to call you, I just wanted to follow up. Then they're more receptive to you the second time. And that's one thing, but you never know who you're gonna get on the other end of the line. And that's what makes real estate interesting. One time I which is the best for sale by owner story I could ever come up with, is I wound up and I was thirty minutes in the appointment and the person says, This house has a remarkable history and I don't know if you want to advertise it or not. And I said, What's that? And they said, This is where Lee Harvey Oswald and his mother live. Bob Schieffer picked him up. The the house had been torn down, but it was still property. And so that was an interesting story, and it got people to look at it first. But it didn't sell the house, but it um, got it a little bit of things. But it's things like that you don't know, and I wouldn't have had that opportunity had I. And I asked the person, I said, why am I in your house? And he said, oh, because you want to sell it, don't you? I said, no. I said, why would you invite me in your house? He said, you were the only one that bothered to call twice and you are the only one that um, wrote a letter to. So as far as those standard things is open houses, sale by owners, and then building sphere of influence, and those things are great. As I always like to think that you should have three core things, one experimental and then one new technology thing that you're doing, and then one that's kind of the futuristic, that you should be looking for future markets, and then there's uh, new technology, and then you have three or four things that you're doing at any given time because one time or another one of them is not going to work and yet I look at it as one way to envision it is as a spider web. A spider web, if you look at a full spider web after a spider makes it, it has eight or nine at least different branches going on them. But you've seen them where they still work when only three or four arms are still up. And so your real estate business can be like that is one link of it doesn't always have to work. And so because it's cyclical, and this is a cyclical business, if open houses are slow because of weather, then you, then you call. And then sometimes mailers seem to work. You don't mail people during Christmas because people are throwing away with catalogs. And so you just have to adjust your marketing to whatever the seasons are. And that learning to do that, Tucson was a good place because the weather changed so drastically is that the market changed with it because half the population of Tucson seems to leave during the summer because it's so hot. So we had to figure out different ways to react to that natural changes. And in any market, some have severe weather in the winter and some severe in the summer. And then there's buying seasons in each market. You have to figure that your marketing should also be done in preparation for the future. And people call me and say, well, I want to talk to you about your marketing next month. And I say, well, you're about six months late on that because you need to be three or four months minimum at least. But i try to be six months ahead on where I'm going to market. So that's kind of how I would approach that.
0: Do you recall how many homes that you and your team sold last year and what the sales volume was?
1: Last year was 271 homes worth about $68 million. But uh, what was significant was the year before that, I was ranked number three in the United States with 511 homes and 123 million. Wow. And that all has to do with finding a niche. And that was a lot of new homes business, and no one can do those, run those kinds of numbers by themselves. And so you have to get a good team together, and you have to find people that complement you rather than do the same thing. And so I have been building that up. I didn't just wake up with that business and things. It's taken Twenty years to learn how to put something together that'll work that way. And, And I opened the company around me so that I can do that niche and then have people doing the resale while I did the new homes.
0: And your niche is new construction. Yes, that's what I do. And most
1: of the listings that I personally do are from personal referrals and some targeted marketing, but it's mainly new homes that I do these days that I personally do and look for larger clients. And I refer a lot of the referrals, the internet leads and things like that, now go to my agents throughout my company, which I have over 100 agents. And so most of those internet leads go with them. The direct leads off of my new homes go to my new homes team. And then the ancillary business that flows through the website gets spread out through the company. Uh, Because you don't want to get too far away from what you're doing. And that's the mistake I see people doing is knowing a little bit about a lot makes you an expert in nothing is what i found. And people that say, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, and they're just building sandcastles in high tide. And it doesn't make any sense. You have to find out what you're doing and stick with it. Otherwise, that's what I call it, is building sandcastles in high tide. They're all going to get washed away if you don't find one and then stick with it and keep at it. So it took me a long time to figure that one out.
0: As you said, becoming a specialist in that niche, and you've chosen new construction. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? For instance, a lot of people would be curious: How did you make the connections? How did you meet the builders and establish those relationships? Well, growing up around it all, all my life, I
1: had a working knowledge of basic construction elements. And to begin with, what I did was is I started doing open houses for builders, really. And how I learned a lot was doing some open houses for somebody who was a new homes manager for several different home builders. And he was the uh, new homes director at my company. And there wasn't one at the time. And and then I was asked to just do a connection and to help manage a subdivision. Uh, It was a smaller one and we did well on it. There was about 25 lots. They'd sold 10, but then they hadn't sold anything in two years. And we went and we took it over, my partner, Melissa and I, and we sold 15 homes in literally nine months and sold it out. Then they opened up another 110 acres to us in two other subdivisions. And so through that, and we gained their trust, and then we got known for it, and this was in Tucson. But then moving back to Fort Worth, I took that experience, and I was able to go to builders and say, look, here's my track record. I've worked with these developments. Here's the numbers where I started, and this is how long it took us to sell. And I worked in three different price points, and then they were receptive to that. They're more receptive if you have some sort of experience, and you can't go into a community or call a builder and expect that you're going to drop a card off and they're going to list with you. And so for some of them, it's taken to get the trust two or three years of just going back and letting them know you're interested. And a lot of times, getting in with builders, is the way to do that is to ask the site representatives what they need if, for example they don't have a listing need, but quite often they have people that need to sell a home, buy one of their homes. And you say, well, I want to be on that end of it. Just go in and say, I'm not interested in listing these houses. I'm interested in helping you when someone needs to buy your house to sell their house. Do you need help with that? And they'll say, I have somebody and then say, well, I'll beat it, whatever they're doing. And then know that your program is better. Uh, And those people... My experience with a lot of the builders, the mid-level managers and even the site people is they all want to look good too. And they have someone they have to answer to. And usually it's somebody just looking with a spreadsheet. And a lot of new construction companies, unfortunately for them, they think that because they build homes, they know how to market them. And nothing is further from the truth. They don't. It's a totally separate skill set. Marketing and building is a completely different skill set. And the most common mistake I see with builders leaving money on the table, and this is where an agent can pick up on, is, is they have accountants making decisions for them, making marketing decisions. So if you can either show them how financially they can become ahead, or find the sales manager and show them how you can make them look like a champion or a superstar, or that salesperson and say, look, I can help make your life easier, and you won't have to worry about this end of it then that's a way in. But if you just think you're going to show up at their corporate office with a business card or meet them once, it doesn't work like that. You have to kind of keep going back over and over and over again and cultivate the relationships. And it took me, um for one, I remember it took four years of going back over and over and over again to get the listing. And what happened was is somebody got sick or had a life-changing event, and they needed a person. They needed an agent in that area. And And I happened to send my information again because I used to contact them several times a year. And I happened to contact them precisely when they had a need. And sometimes it's luck. And I'd rather have luck than skill any day. But it's preparedness meeting opportunity is all luck is really.
0: Now, you mentioned one of the ways that you were getting in was to work with the site rep and help them when they had a client or a customer who needed to sell a home to buy theirs. You mentioned you would beat out another agent's offer. How were you doing that? Were you doing a guaranteed sale program or what kind of unique situation were you arranging that you would look better than the other agent? You know, with the guaranteed sale, I
1: honestly don't get that because someone asked me that and I said, no, I don't guarantee that. I said, look, if I had that type of retirement space, I wouldn't be selling real estate in the first place. And I said, I just won't list the house. And we're just going to tell them if they won't list the house at a reasonable rate that will sell, that statistically speaking, that has a high probability of selling, then they're just not going to get the new home. So that's what we tell them. I'm not going to play a game with someone and say, I'm going to buy your house. I don't need another house. I already own one. I'm not interested in buying someone's house. I'm interested in selling their house. And if they're not interested in selling their house to buy that builder's home, then why are you fooling with them in the first place? And that's my response to that. I think it's a gimmick. I think it's one of the biggest gimmicks in real estate. and I. I mean, it's silly because what they do is I've never seen anyone who did it or anything less than this is they list the homes for less than market value. They give a price that I don't think is usually as high as they could get in order to make that succeed. And if the market drops, they're going to be stuck with a lot of houses. So what I do is it's either I offer a better program or there's different ways to do it. It's just you have to prove your own value over someone else. But I just show them our track record. that basically answers that question for them.
0: It sounds like you tell the site rep that what you're going to do with the seller of the property needs to buy their home is that you're going to be straight with them. You're going to outline what they need to do in order to meet the timelines necessary to buy that new home. And you're going to be straight with them about that and give them a little bit of tough love.
1: Yes. And really, that's the same thing. It's just another way of rephrasing it because the people that are doing those, I'll buy your home, guaranteed. They have a formula that it has to be within a certain percentage of whatever they determine the market value is. So it's the same thing. And if you're in a good market, these kinds of programs are only done in hot markets. by the way. You notice that. Okay. So it's like guaranteeing selling water in the desert. But then there's also things, and on occasion, yes, you can offer different programs if it is a volume builder that they can put you on the build job, and then you can work out arrangements with builder as well um, because people are buying up, not down. And so you can, for example, list the home for free or do 3% or whatever that percentage is the market, the average market is uh, rate for the buyer's agency commission, and then the builder can put you on their build at whatever rate that is, and that's one way to do it. There's different ways to do it, but that is one way to offer some sort of buyout, buyout program for the client who needs to sell a home to buy a builder's home. And so, a lot of times, builders they have one person looking over a district, and they're assigned 15, 16 subdivisions, and they're in charge of all those sales of those, and having to worry about the when is all the drywall, when are these homes going to be finished, and all of that plus sales plus managing the personalities of the salespeople, plus worrying about the contract. And so the other thing is, is um, they're stretched in on what they can do by marketing. And so salespeople have more influence sometimes on who the builder lists with than others. And they certainly have the control over whose card they pass out if someone needs help. That's for sure.
0: So you make an arrangement with the builder and the site rep at the builder. You can help people sell a home to buy theirs in the retail market and that you can do it at a lower cost because you can make an arrangement where the builder will compensate you on the other side when they purchase the new home. And therefore you can do the listing commission at a lower rate or maybe zero on the listing side in order to make that work, which also gives that seller buyer a little more cash to purchase their new home construction. Correct. It
1: all comes from the same pot anyway. So it doesn't really matter if you're receiving compensation from the builder or from the seller because you're being put on a bill where there is no work, they're just putting you on that. But that is where they're compensating you and it makes the buyer of that home feel like they're getting a deal and that makes them feel good about it. And so that's the science behind that, but that's in essence how it works. Yes, so you're correct.
0: And you are correct that the buyer is paying the same amount out for the seller to buy and the total cost. However, it does shift that cash flow a little bit so that they have that extra, say, 3%, in our example, in cash in their hand when they go to purchase the new home, which is a little more helpful if they're on the edge in their financing.
1: Correct. They do. And usually, builders, about the highest that I've ever seen is 48% of homes are sold by agents through builders. Usually it's 50 percent or less I mean involving agents. I misspoke. So usually it's 50 percent or less of actual build jobs with new homes have agents involved. So within that workable time frame, builders on their spreadsheets, they make the assumption just to make it easy that most of their builds are going to involve an agent. So that's already on their spreadsheet. I don't know if you've ever been the back office of a uh, builder, but when you, a good business person has their projections not based on what they hope, and that was the first word said to me at Harvard Business School, because I attend Harvard Business School, and the first words that were said to me when we walked in as the director of our program comes in, says, I am Professor Applegate, and hope is not a strategy. And so when the builder is making their spreadsheets out on what the cost of the build is going to be, they already have that commission put in that a realtor is going to be involved. And so a good builder will realize, and that's a good relationship to have, because that person will also, if they're involved in that niche too, they're going to bring people back and ultimately it'll come back to them. So the idea is by having that line item in there, they're already prepared. So they're happy to go ahead and take it because not everyone is going to but there's going to be a certain percentage, and then another 25% won't have any agent at all. So it works out for them, too. They've already prepared to absorb that cost the builder has, that there's going to be an agent representing the buyer. So they've already figured that out. So,
0: Alexander, you mentioned that you're working with these new home construction. You mentioned that you put together programs where you were actually helping the new home builder list and market their properties you were doing a lot of work on the marketing let's talk about that side of the business for a second you've already worked your way in and there you now have a relationship with the builder a couple questions first of all do you work with a certain size of builder do you work with people who are just building a couple homes a year or 50 homes a year or 100 homes a year is there a correct market for you to dive into
1: they call the larger builders the mega builders where you have Home builders like somebody like a History Maker Homes or something like that, or even DR Horton or Baldy Homes uh, or Cole Brothers. But then you have smaller builders, mid range builders, and they might build between 50 and 150 homes a year. But your average builder builds less than 50 homes a year. And so, and they're often ignored. And so, I have different programs depending on A, the size of the home and how much marketing they're going to want because it's not appropriate to put certain homes in luxury magazines nor is it appropriate to put luxury homes in other magazines or certain ads and so whatever fits the program if someone has less inventory i charge them more if they have more inventory i charge less per home and so if someone is listing several homes in uh, multiple subdivisions we work out a good program for them that fits but it has to work for all parties and the other thing is this you don't want to sell yourself short when negotiating an arrangement with the builder because you have to get paid and if you're always chasing carrots it just doesn't work you just get tired so that's the cautionary tale on that is the future business that you're not going to get you have to make sure that you're compensated uh, accordingly to the work or the merit of the work and you have to bring value to them whatever it is but if you're selling something like 50 homes for a builder, you can work out a better program per home than let's say if the builder had one or five. And if it's a luxury home, typically they want, it's a higher percentage closer to a standard rate because we wind up putting those in luxury magazines and we quite often, there might or might not be site people because they are custom homes. The higher the price range, the more custom it is and therefore they need more custom marketing. So then you get the semi-custom homes, which are the lower price range. And then, of course, there are your inventory homes that I call them. I don't like calling them track homes. We just call them inventory homes as far as I'm concerned because that means that there's a lot more inventory. And so those would be your high-volume builders. And so it depends on A, the price range, B, the number of homes, and then C, there's also a location factor. And then D, which is what are their needs uh, with marketing and the extent of how much time it's going to take you to do that. So I hope that answers the question.
0: You did, and you brought up an interesting idea here. Let's put it on the table. For agents who haven't worked with new home construction, first question, do you receive compensation that's similar to what you would by selling a retail home?
1: On some of them, yes. On more of the custom homes, I do. If it's a high-volume builder, those things are typically done and they're always done on a flat fee, most of the time. Most of the time, they are done on a flat fee basis for high-volume builders. No one is going to list, no builder in their right mind is going to list hundreds of homes at what you would call a standard individual home market rate that you see in the resale market. They don't have to do it because there's too many people out there That'll do it for flat fee. And you see a lot of them will do uh, with some companies where you can bring value is I noticed that a lot of times people in the builder industry, they think they're saving money by paying someone nothing to do nothing. And that's what they get is just the post and hope strategy on the internet. And 90% of the people start online. However, 80% of people, it seems that are online, have a realtor or wind up working with a realtor. And so that is the part that they're missing. And there's so much information online. Builder should be picking someone with some sort of marketing acumen as well. And then if they're just posting with, there's companies out there that'll just put a home in the MLS for nothing. And that's kind of what they get. And if the market shifts, they wind up behind and they wind up holding the bag for a bunch of inventory. Are they pick agents that do not understand how marketing works, nor do they understand how finance or how an economic market works, how economic cycles affect the economy and people's purchasing power. They don't. And so that is the most common mistake I see with builders is choosing the wrong realtor based on their friends. They have a comfortable relationship with them because it's a nice person or they think they do a good enough job and they show up on time and they do the basic thing, but they don't, they're leaving money on the table by not choosing someone that's aggressive. And being aggressive without being a jerk, showing them that you're interested and that you'll do more work and that you can show them a return, that's a good thing for them.
0: You mentioned that for the inventory homes, the high volume homes, you're often doing it as a flat fee. And I assume that takes some time for you then to make sure that you calculate what your true cost is to make sure that you're covering the true cost and then a little bit of profit on top of that. And so you must analyze that quite a bit to figure out how to establish that fee to make sure that you're not going to end up upside down.
1: Absolutely. And you have to be very careful with that because you can wind up upside down very easily. And hoping that you're going to get a bunch of internet leads off of them and are the phone's going to magically ring because you have all these listings there but it doesn't work like that. So you do have to structure those costs not only to meet your needs, make sure that all your people are getting paid and that you have enough staff to handle that business because it's a lot of technical work putting in. It is not easy doing spreadsheets for if you have inventories of a couple of 100 homes. It's I mean it's not easy necessarily to keep up with that. So you have to have people that are putting that information in. It's a nonstop job if you have a high inventory of homes that you're managing. And so just hiring a single agent to do it as far as builders are concerned a bad idea. You should be hiring a team to do it on their end. But as far as a real estate agent, I would start with maybe smaller builders and then work your way up.
0: Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. And are you currently working with which group of builders? You mentioned earlier that you have, you said, average builders doing 50 homes or less. You said mid-range and small doing up to maybe 150 homes a year and then these mega builders. Are you working with all of those groups or do you niche in again and specialize in one of those groups?
1: We're working with several mid-range builders right now. And for a lot of the high volume builders, we're focusing on a westward community. And we're doing a lot of programs for the builders. And so we're working on various programs with several of the uh, high-volume builders in the area. And some of them mid-range. And I work with several custom builders on an
0: ongoing basis. You mentioned several times you have different marketing programs. Could you describe what kind of programs? What are you doing for the builder specifically? For people who haven't been part of the building industry, what are you doing for them?
1: That is. Of course, making sure that the listing is input properly and basic on that, but make sure that an intelligent internet social media campaign is done and that the follow-up is done properly, the proper type of lead routing and the customer care, and then care of the site itself if the site agents need help. So it's a suite of services, and I think that offering a full package is really the key
0: on that. Sounds like you're doing a lot of the marketing and lead generation for the new home builder. Are you also installing a site agents or having your agents go out on site?
1: Well, sometimes we'll have our agents where there's more traffic and if they need them, go and hold the builder's open house for them. In the site, let's say it's a large community and they have four or five spec homes out in the subdivision open on the weekends or any given day. And sometimes our agents will go out there and help them. And then they'll make arrangements with the site agents. So that's a good way to get in too, is to ask if they need help on busy days and ask them in their prime time because sometimes the builders will only have one person in a community. And if they know that they can have you do it and hold homes open just to answer questions, another way to get in too. So yes, we do have our agents do open houses for many of our builders. And sometimes site people have things to do and they'll say, hey, can you help us on these days? And we're always willing to help. And that's what's good about having A, a team and B, having access and a company with 100 plus agents is the fact that I have those resources that others don't. And that does give me a competitive advantage.
0: How early do you get in on the building process? Are you helping builders go out to find the raw land? Are you helping them figure out what type of homes or price ranges to build? Or are you coming in more at the end after they've made decisions and they're starting to build?
1: In some cases, I have helped with the raw land and gone all the way through from when it was scrub, where there was nothing, to the very end. I'm in a situation now where the builder who is a very experienced builder overbought in an area or they're trying to overbuild in an area and they have some serious problems. And so they were using a Post and Hope brokerage and they called me because the person had zero answers or zero knowledge of marketing knowledge. And because that's all they did was Post listings. They had zero knowledge of how marketing actually works and zero insight on what do we want to say, creative ways to market, to turn subdivisions around. So I often get called in at the end when something's not going right because they know I'm an expert. And that's the funny thing. And then after that happens, then often, that business is retained, and that person becomes a long-term client because I've helped them in a difficult situation. And so I get called in. Sometimes that is my entry point. Is, our, I've gone and made presentations. They're like, well, we don't, we're comfortable. We don't need a switch. But then something goes wrong, and then they want the expert. And then so that's one thing is you have to keep yourself out there as the expert. So when that need arises, you know, you call a fireman when there's a fire. But if you had them to tell you how to prevent the fire in the first place, sometimes that works too. But a lot of folks are proactive like that. I'm in a very hot market. And right now in Dallas, Fort Worth, I'm in Fort Worth, but we have one of the fastest growing communities in the United States. And sometimes they don't see that need, but we're able to fulfill the need when when a community goes bad and we wind up helping them with more business. That's kind of how that works. As well.
0: What are some common reasons, some common mistakes that are made that allow a subdivision to go bad? And then what are some of the solutions that you've come in with?
1: A poor upfront agreement with the developer on a clear vision of what the subdivision is, and looking at the land and thinking, well, we have a good price on the raw land, and then we're going to stick our model on here and sell them at a particular price without viewing what the demographic of the community are. And that is the situation that I'm helping with someone right now is their homes are in an area that they're the highest price home in the area. Dollar per foot and not necessarily that they're even bigger square footage. It's just that they have so many more amenities and most of the people in this area are just wanting... Four walls. So I get called in as an expert and that's because they didn't plan it out very well. They didn't have a clear agreement with the developer, for example, on who was going to pay for the a simple things like the monument out front and the gate and how often the lots were going to get mowed to keep it up. And, and they have to make sure that they know the other builders that are going to be in the community because they're building on one level and the guy next door is building on a totally different level and he's bringing them down and their home's hard to sell. That's one thing. And then getting too far away, trying to spread yourself out too thin. And the race to the land race, because of the rapid growth here, I see that happening more often because the land closer to the core of Fort Worth is getting more expensive and people are going further out and builders, and in some of these communities, they're gambling with the land. And so people getting away from their core formulas is where I see the highest mistake. I have witnessed the bankruptcy of one builder who got into what I called, it was just a ridiculous space-age type community where they it was unsustainable what they were promising, And because of one development, it took the entire company down because they got out of their net. And builders need to stay in their niche, too. And then I saw um, one very large builder, and I think they're spending too much time. They're masters at inventory homes and entry-level homes and mid-range homes, and they're trying to get in the luxury market, and they're not doing a very good job of it. And you can't be an expert in everything. There's a reason why McDonald's doesn't sell filet mignon. They don't need to. Why would they want to do that? Silly that's a perfect example. And I'm not talking about hamburgers. It's the analogy of it is McDonald's now offers salads too. Well, with a builder that has a core identity of building within a particular range and they're very good at it, they should figure out how to improve what they're doing. And it's okay to experiment, but you don't necessarily tie your entire business to it. And so that's a mistake that I see people making is going and chasing unicorn, as I call it. So stick with your core.
0: When you step into a development that is being built out, that's outside of the core of that builder, how do you help them fix that? Do you have them tear down what they've built and start over? Do you have them just in their work there? How do you get them to correct so that they don't bring their company down? Well,
1: with that, was I, I, was, um, I was called into the tail end of something, um, and that was years ago. But really, I saw one, they were doing okay, and I had just spoke with the managers and said, yeah, this is good. It got your name out here doing this luxury thing, but you got your core going here, and if you want to do this sideline thing, you might want to, but think how much energy you're spending where you are having your top salespeople sitting here trying to sell five homes at 900000 or a million. When that person could be out there selling 150 homes at 300000 what's going to make you more money? And so math is clear. You know, when you take that thing away, just the fantasy of being something that you're not, it's okay that if you're not a big luxury builder, because it was said to me one time, and this is how I can sum this whole thing up as far as choosing the right marketplace. And some luxury builders, they get in smaller homes too. It works the other ways. And I've seen them try to get into competitions with people that are very, very good at knocking out homes quickly. And then they have a difficult time choosing what not to put in the home. So it works in reverse too. Is One time I was at a place called the Fort Worth Club and it was new members night and this fella had, had too much to drink and he said, there's only about people in this town that really matter. And if you know them, you can do business everywhere because they control all the wealth and money. And I said, I'll tell you what, you take that 1,000 and I'll take the other 799,000 because that was the population. And I said, and we'll see who does better, you with that 1,000 or me with the other 799,000 because your odds are greater. I'm more interested in volume. And that's always been my niche too. I will take, $300,000 homes over $1 million home any day of the week. And you notice how I frame that sentence. I did 300 come up to 900,000 for a reason because when you do a $1 million dollar home, you just have one client now. When you do three $300,000 homes, you have three clients now that can now refer a business. And that's success in real estate. And most people, I get a lot of people walk into my office and they start telling me they want to do luxury or and other things, but to a lot of people, the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar home is a luxury home, and so I was taught a valuable lesson when I think I was about thirty five or so. I was having a conversation, and this was the largest sale I'd ever had i'll never forget it. It was about $750,000 seven hundred and fifty thousand one seven hundred and fifty thousand still a lot of money, but this was a big deal back then and my client was a uh, a very prominent national attorney did class action lawsuits. And and I was having a conversation with him about $10,000 over repairs or something. And he says to me, Alex, I could care less about the $10,000. He goes, that makes no difference to me because we're talking about principle. And I go, okay. And then within the hour, I'm talking to another fellow who's buying a $100,000 home, and we were talking about $1,000. And he goes, I could care less about the $1,000. It's the principle. I was having the exact same conversation with a man talking about $10,000 and $1,000. But what it was is it was the same conversation, and it was the same solution that we came to in both, but the scale was different. And that is one thing that I can advise agents or builders do is don't let the uh, price range Make a difference in your thinking. You're just talking about scale. It's often the same conversation in negotiation. Someone called me last night and it was a top agent over a multi million dollar sale. And they had asked me something, a question that they'd asked me before about a smaller price range sale. And I said, It's the same. I said, Does the price range bother you? And said, Yes. I said, Well, it's bothering the other person too. Let them worry about it. You're just talking about scale. So that's one advice I can give with people is don't let the scale bother you, but also stick within that scale that you're comfortable with. And so we're in a volume business, and that's what I learned from, ironically, the man who was the CEO of the large independently owned company in the United States, which at the time was Long Realty, and the founder who was the first Sotheby's actual independently owned Sotheby's company, which was Christopher Webster. And Christopher Webster was known for luxury. And uh, this other man, Steve Quinlan, who was a great mentor for me, he was a master at volume and his company did volume. He took over a company that had something like 250 agents and he got it up to 1,800 agents in five years and did massive volume. And they said the exact same thing to me. And that was, is Alex real estate is all about volume. You're in a volume business and he who controls the listings controls the market. And so I never forgot that. So I tried not to let price range get out of the way. When you're an agent, when you let price get into the way, it clouds your thinking. And so I kind of went in a circle on that, but I hope I came back around with something of value.
0: I think you had a lot there and I'd actually like to dig into a little bit in fact, you gave two great examples of a concept and that is you've mentioned niche. You've had success with a niche. You mentioned these builders who do average price homes trying to get into luxury and one of the problems is that the brand is not luxury if they're an average home seller. The market doesn't understand when they try to go do luxury. You also mentioned how Luxury builder going down has a problem, and a lot of that has to do with the perception in the market, the brand. And I think you can also then take that and match that with the real estate industry. If you're working with luxury people versus working with average people, it is different in the perception of the market. Although you mentioned there's similar challenges, the real issue is the marketing. You know, Toyota wanted to go into luxury cars. They didn't start creating luxury Toyotas. They went and created Lexus because you need to create a brand differentiation in the market. And I think you've really created a whole bunch of great points to point that out. Exactly.
1: And either way, no matter what it is, is your goal is to create value. is to have a value proposition or whatever price range it is. And so remember that a lot of the people that are in What you might call luxury homes, they started somewhere too. And you can grow your business into that end. And there's nothing wrong with having those goals. And I want to be abundantly clear on that. And I just learned to take that out of it from one of the first pieces of advice my mother told me, which is probably the best advice other than showing up at the office, was don't count your commissions. And once you uh, get that out of the way, but if If you're fortunate enough to be in the luxury market and that's what it is, then then that's fantastic, but you can't force something that's not there and you are right as being with that range and sometimes your brand or whatever company that you might be at, that could hinder you too. But a lot of times, the irony is is that in the luxury market, most of the time, that is even more contact-based than... What you would call a lower range homes. Okay, let's let's put it this way: the average sales price for a home in Dallas Fort Worth is 250,000, like 245. Let's call it 250,000. And what's interesting is, is the homes below that, when you're going between 125 to 250,000, people tend not to have agents or not to be attached to them as much. When you get into higher price range, people tend to have agents more, and it's harder to break into that market. The more sophisticated the buyer is, the more likely, and when I say sophisticated, I mean the more income they make and the more disposable income and that sort of thing that they have, the more likely they are to actually have a realtor in place already. So it is harder to break into that market. And a lot of that does have to do with connection. And you'd be surprised at the reason why people pick realtors. I ran an ad once that said, don't hire a realtor because they donated to a bake sale, hire an expert. I meant that, but a lot of times in the luxury market, some people do just pick for uh, for familiar reasons because the person is familiar to them and then others. There are people that within that marketplace do dominate and people pick them because they're established and, and there's a smaller pool of homes and there's also a smaller pool of agents too and that's harder to break into. That's why when moving into any new market, unless you can somehow get into that luxury market through some sort of connection or whatever that would be, is I would tell a person first to concentrate on volume before they concentrate on price range. But that price range has to fit and you have to figure it out mathematically. And so without, you have to figure out what you need to make first. And if you don't put it on paper, like back to the geometry analogy that I said before, is you have to work it out on paper. And that is, what your needs are, and your family's needs, start with that, and 25% of whatever you do should be put back into marketing regardless. Pay yourself first, they always say, and then 25% goes into marketing, and the rest is bills.
0: Then profit left over, unfortunately. Alexander, what percentage of your business is new construction? I
1: looked at it, actually, the other night in preparation for this, 90% of my business has been listings and new home. I looked over the course of the last 10 years, 90% of my personal business has been listings.
0: Well, you found your niche and you stuck with it and you're doing volume in it and it's taking care of you.
1: Yes, it has. And the thing of it is also, I wanted to create an atmosphere where my favorite quote is, without promotion, something terrible happens, nothing. And so I got known be a superior marketer and to do creative things. And when I started, I started out very small and I did it in a down market. When everybody was pulling back, I was pushing forward and so I was able to be like a buffer fish. And I got known for my marketing and that was my original niche. I got known for my marketing and people saw value in that during a down market. And as far as I'm concerned, you can be more profitable in a down market than an up market because people tend to be the experts, and I once heard a national speaker talk him. There must have been 500 people in the room, and I asked everybody at my office meeting, I said, what was the message there? And they all said, get up, and uh, once you're down, once you get knocked down, get up, and I kept hearing all these awful Newt Rockne quotes, and I just said, no, you all missed it. Be the expert. And that is my advice to everyone, too, is find your niche and then be the expert in that, too got to get the volume
0: Alexander you mentioned that you have had a lot of creative ways a lot of creative marketing that you've become known for could you give us an example of a creative marketing campaign that you've done for one of the subdivisions or one of the builders
1: well there's several things that we have done and which is do a lot of cross marketing and with the internet of course there are so many things possible is I just listed a home and we had multiple offers on it because we did so much pre marketing on Facebook and social media and things like that. And you can just have to look around you, and there's so many different creative ways, whether or not be ads and different ways to do ads. And the way you write your ads and the way you even write your comments need to be in a creative way. And so, even the most, here's best advice on creativity is take the mundane and make it creative. You don't have to draw stars all over it. You can have one star, just make it look good. Does that make sense? And that goes back into people thinking they have to do all these magical things and come up with some sort of magic trick. You just have to take the mundane and make it. That is the trick to creative marketing, is to take the mundane and make it interesting. And that's what people miss. I see it every time when new speakers come in and you get these bright-eyed faces and their eyes are listening and gleaming and you get in this business, you're interviewing me, and if we were up in a panel, okay, envision this. Let's say you and I were up on a stage somewhere and we got all these new agents and their eyes are glistening and gleaming and all this in the very beginning, and then after about two or three hours, they're going to go, wait, this guy ain't Moses, is he going down the Ten Commandments and tell us which one to pick? <laughs> the answer is no. You have to pick for yourself. But I would say take the mundane. And that's what's funny is sometimes when I go to watch these things and then people are asking they're looking for that magic bullet. But to repeat that is is to create value where others have created value and make the mundane creative. I learned that by... It was really funny as the first On the internet, most people don't realize that your average person spends less than a minute and 13 seconds on each site. And if you don't get people in the comments of the first two or three pictures, they're gone. So you have to take and make those mundane comments, make them a little bit more interesting. And then be creative with the reinforcement of your ad. And be creative with your ad and the image that you portray. And be creative with what you're saying. I mean, what is a million-dollar producer? That doesn't mean anything to anybody. Think of a better slogan than that. But uh, I guess other things creative that we've done is to blend in creative ways, different Facebook posts and promotions and things of that nature. And um, you don't want to focus everything on just being so
0: just dramatically creative that you forget to do the basic element. You have to balance that. Well, Alexander, you mentioned earlier Do you have a new home team. Could you give us a quick overview of the folks on your team? Just show us the structure, tell us the titles, the positions, and what they're responsible for?
1: Sure. I handle the mainly the upfront negotiations with the builders and the advice, and that part of the package that I provide is general consulting. And so I actually do perform the listings. And then I do have a person that handles the input of the listings and the maintenance if there's problems with the paperwork and the pictures and all that, the daily grind sort of things, the things that make the trains run on time. You have to have someone methodical to do that. And then I typically have a couple, which I do, is a couple of people that are more toward the listing side that help me when a builder needs to have someone list a home to buy a home. And then I have people on that team to uh, work with buyers that come off of the referrals off that. And then a lot of times do contact us that they start. A lot of people start or wind up in new homes because they couldn't find a residential home that met their needs. So they just go build one. So you have to have people that are experienced with buyers too, working with those builders because they also need to be prepared that if that doesn't work out, then we do get leads off of having the new home inventory on our website and the rest of it people call and so we have buyers agents some people prefer to work with buyers too and are very successful at that and that's great and for me that's perfect because i like the listing end of it the marketing end of it better i find it more interesting so i basically have and usually those people they overlap a little bit and so they're uh a lot of that has to do with the personality and the geography of it. And then so I like to have several people on the team. That way there's always someone available. Because especially with the internet, everybody's instant gratification.
0: So you have a pretty small team working this new home construction, if I understand. It sounds like basically about four people. You, a listing coordinator, and a few agents who are helping on uh, listings as well as helping buyers.
1: Yes. But then we do have technology people, and then we have a whole website team. And we have a phenomenal website. That's a whole separate thing. And then that's a back-end team that we have. And then my office, we have a support staff, too, that helps with things, too. But I had attempted and had too many people working, too many floating people out there. And so we were able to keep the people busy enough on the team so that we didn't... and, And that's the idea is to not have... Is for that team anyway, is to have it spread out too thin is to have it spread out too thin. And that was a mistake that I made early on was that is I had it spread out a little bit too thin because really the maintenance on a lot of subdivisions, sometimes they're more or less, but if you manage it correctly, you can streamline your activities. And so and having one person do the input and then uh, the, uh, actually the buyers and, buyers and sellers agents, um, buyer and listing agents, helping with those other customers that are involved in that circle of business. Depending on what you're doing, you don't really need more than that. And then I do have a pool of agents in the office that sometimes help on other occasions. So I'm fortunate to have that.
0: Is your new home team profitable?
1: Yes. And that's something that we're going to keep doing and and keep moving forward with because the market changes and people's needs change. And as long as I think Texas isn't going to run on land anytime soon, certainly North Texas. And so I think this is something that we can keep with longevity. We just have to keep ahead of where we're going, keep ahead of the competition, really, because there's always... And that's the thing that they teach you at Harvard Business School is, well, no one has a monopoly on this sort of thing. And people that aren't finding a new competitive way of doing things, they fall behind. Because I started. 20 years ago when we were using books, the MLS books, and people would call me up and say, I want to go look at at a couple of houses, and I would pick them out of a book, and the book came out every two weeks. But now people call us and tell us what homes they want to look at, but staying advanced with the technology and the rest of it, being agile, I guess, is one of the advantages that we bring, but I do think that overall it is profitable, can be. But uh, I can see where it cannot be profitable if you don't have the right program in place.
0: Alexander, what drives you?
1: That's an interesting question. And I would say success and innovation. I'm not a person that's motivated by money. Is I'm motivated by success. And I'm interested in creativity, really. I'm interested in doing things that other people have not. And so I'm looking for a better way to do things. Whoever has the best mousetrap wins. And that's what I find interesting in real estate is there's always a new challenge.
0: Alexander, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first?
1: That's a very good question. And I do believe the first thing that I would tell them to do first is to identify what their financial needs are. And the reason why I say that is because most people don't do that. They have no idea. And they come in and I speak to many agents and rarely I do I say, "Well, how much do you need to make and you need to figure out a plan on what you're going to sell." And then the second thing that they need to do is identify the marketplace in which they're going to work. And then the third thing would be is identify all the resources. And I was in a program called Leadership Fort Worth where you have future business leaders. And this was years ago I did this. And we did these um, exercises where we were to figure out all our resources. And before a person starts on any marketing campaign, first they have to identify the amount of income they need to make. But really, one of the things they really need to do is because I had someone in my office yesterday and, and I said, what are your resources? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, everybody you know, every club, every contact you have is a potential resource. And you have to figure out what all your resources are and which of those can be streams of revenue. And that's identify potential revenue streams. and then pick out which ones are best for you.
0: Alexander, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Yes, I do. It was
1: spoken to me by Reed Buckley, William Buckley's brother, but in his own right. He was the first freshman debate captain at Yale and never lost a debate in his entire career there. But he was a public speaking coach and a debate and an executive coach for uh, public relations. And he said that in the aggregate, your average person, whether you're talking to Nobel laureates or electricians, your average person can only absorb one or two things in an hour if you're given a speech. But you never know what that one thing is that is going to click with someone. If you think about all the books that you've read and then, I mean, think about it, you only remember one or two things within six months of any book that you've probably read. And so I think picking, I can't tell you, people ask me when I go, and I do a lot of recruiting at real estate schools and other venues, and the most common question asked me is, how do you become successful? And one day I looked at this person and I just said, well, and I wasn't trying to be flippant as I said, I don't know. You need to ask the person in the mirror. And I said, look, the people selling these books about the bullet and the one thing and all that doesn't work. And so you need to find out what it is that's going to work for you. And you have to experiment a little bit as far as. Being successful in real estate, it's a game of persistence as much as anything else, but identifying revenue sources and being persistent and don't give up. You have to take a minimum of six months to see if any sort of marketing campaign works, minimum. And anybody with any experience will tell you that. How long did you give it? A couple of months? Well, that doesn't work. Anybody with any experience, I mean, you can tell if something's a dog real quick. I mean, anybody can, but a good marketing campaign should be minimum of six months and carry it out over a year. And then you start tweaking it. You give it three or four months, and then you tweak it as you go. And hopefully it works. And if it doesn't work, you move on to something else. Don't be afraid to try things. And that's why I like about the innovation and the creativity in real estate and why it's interesting watching these changes happen now. Because it has, as I mentioned, changed dramatically within the last 10 years. And it will change over the next 10 years. It's going to be a total different game. And those that adapt will survive and those that don't won't
0: well alexander i've come to the end of my questions for today do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners
1: i would say that really one of the things that like i said the first thing that was mentioned to me at harvard was is hope is not a strategy and be persistent one of the things that my grandfather his parting words to me were The only thing you take with you is your pride and the only thing you leave behind with your reputation. Never forget that. And don't ever sell yourself out or short. Keep your reputation intact and be persistent. And, you know, be creative and remember that you just have to, you do have to keep going and you have to have a strategy. And without a strategy, you're not going to get far either. So I think that pretty much sums up my thoughts on that.
0: Well, Alexander, your strategy to niche into representing new home builders and your persistence in three different markets has paid off. You tapped your creative side to find marketing solutions for selling builders' homes. Your ability to make the mundane interesting has assured your continued success. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 111 homes last year by focusing on referrals. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.